Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. What happened at Amazon facilities around the world on Black Friday? After three weeks of striking, teachers are back in class in Portland, Oregon, and today on the show, how the housing crisis is being exploited in the state of Minnesota, and our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger. Welcome to the Tuesday, November 28th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Jake Schwitzer. Jake is a researcher. He spent over a decade researching, creating, enacting, and defending public policies that improve the lives of people working in the state of Minnesota. He's a grassroots organizer, communicator, worked on a number of political campaigns. And what we're going to talk about today is the housing crisis. And, you know, just about every state faces a housing crisis. We're talking affordable homes in that housing crisis, and the situation is just getting worse. In fact, Jake reports the supply of low-cost rental housing in Minnesota has decreased by a quarter over the last decade from 408,000 affordable units, that's in 2011, to 308,000 in 2021 now enter state and local governments they're trying to fix this with investments here's the problem the money is going to shady contractors the use of contractors that have a record of cheating workers or facing allegations of exploitation is far too common reports jake so what they did, they did a deep dive and they have just released a report that explores how public financing flows to a handful of private for-profit housing developers that employ contractors that have been charged with or face allegations of exploitation, according to interviews with workers and industry experts. The uh, report focused on two programs that do not have Strong enough labor standards. We're going to get into detail on this. Low-income housing tax credits and tax increment financing, better known as TIF. Very, very popular. Very, very popular. So here's the deal. They are urging the state to step up its labor standards on these projects and increase, well, number one, increase transparency of who is working on these projects disqualify the contractors with a record of abuse and give preferences to the contractors that do the right things. All right. And I have to thank one of our partners here on America's workforce for uh, leading us into this discussion. That would be Lucas Franco. Lucas is with Lyuna, Minnesota. Great website, lyunaminnesota.org. They have uh, 13,440 skilled construction members represented 835 total signatory union contractors. 
And uh, right now, their apprenticeship program is off the charts. They're doing really well in Minnesota, North Dakota, not so much because uh, that's pretty much a right-to-work state. But uh, Lucas contacted me about a month ago and said, hey, you know what? We got to get this guy on the show, Jake Schwitzer. And uh, today is the day we got him on. By the way, the organization he's involved with is North Star Policy Action. Northstarpolicy.org is their website, and Jake serves as executive director. Tommy Buffenbarger will be joining us later in the show. Tommy serving as our independent labor voice, former general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. And today he is going to focus on the people, we're talking about members of the Machinist Union, who built the B-29. I saw a great episode on the History Channel just recently about the B-29, which uh, which took off, actually. Test flight was uh, September 21st, 1942. They started working on this in the 1930s. And uh, this is one heck of a plane. One heck of a plane. Um, it has a maximum weight. When the, the first one had a maximum permissible weight of 105,000 pounds, that was upgraded to 108,000 pounds. 1,300,000 man hours it took to build the plane. That was the first one. And they built almost 4,000 of them. They were flying the B-29s all the way up to the uh, 1950s. And keep in mind, this is the plane that dropped the bomb in Hiroshima, or Hiroshima, how you want to pronounce it, in Nagasaki. It was one heck of a plane built by American workers, union brothers and sisters, all partners with the uh, International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. And Tom Buffenbarger is going to give us a bit of a history lesson here, much like he did back on the 4th of July with the story of Harley Davidson. That's a great story. And if you missed that, check it out, awfpodcast.com. Tom Buffenbarger, I love what he brings to America's workforce. Now look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson, Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Well, Americans' Black Friday activities had a bit of an international flair to them this year as Amazon workers in over 30 countries walked out on strike last Friday. The UNI, that's U-N-I, Global Unions Make Amazon Pay campaign called for fair pay and the right to join unions. Black Friday marked the Coventry UK Warehouse's 28th day of industrial action this year. Workers there signed up 1,200 members and submitted a formal bid for union recognition before the company hired an additional 1,000 workers in a move many see as an attempt to bust the union. German trade union Verdi, very powerful group, estimated that nearly 2,000 workers from six fulfillment centers around Germany walked out. Spanish workers called for a one-hour strike on each shift during Cyber Monday yesterday. In France, protests include blocking Amazon parcel lockers with posters and tape. Amazon workers in India use the strike to demand sustainability commitments from the company and to shed light on the mental and physical repercussions of Amazon's performance monitoring systems, 
among other demands. Amazon spokespeople around the world told customers that the strike would not disrupt distribution, but it remains to be seen. Nearly 400 Macy workers, we talked about this yesterday in Washington, they began a three-day strike on Black Friday, protesting alleged unfair labor practices and refusal to agree on a new contract. They're represented by Food and Commercial Workers Local 3000, and those talks have uh, have stalled. Meanwhile, teachers in Portland, Oregon, they reached a tentative agreement. This was late Sunday night, returning the union and 45,000 students to the classroom yesterday after three weeks of striking. The Portland Association of Teachers, better known as PAT, went on strike at the beginning of this month, November 1st, calling for wage increases, faculty improvements, and mental health programs. The tentative deal addresses classroom size, teacher salaries, and health and safety demands. If ratified, educators can expect a 13.8% cost of living increase. This is over the life of the contract, which is three years. The teachers will also see an increase of 90 minutes per week in planning time and reduced class size. The agreement still must be approved by union members as well as the school board. And last Tuesday, one week ago from today, the United Auto Workers ratified their new contracts with General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. The new contracts include wage increases of at least 25% over the next four and a half years, cost of living increases, union coverage for electric battery plants, and the reopening of a closed plant. That's the uh, Stellantis plant in, uh, in uh, Indiana, Belvedere, they call that plant. These were just extraordinary wins, especially for those of us who have been studying strikes for decades. That comment today from Jake Rosenfield, who's a labor expert at Washington University. And Sean Fain, president of the UAW, told Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, this is a sign of the times in the last 40 years, working class people went backwards continually. There's this massive chasm between the billionaire class and the working class. And when those things get out of balance, well, we need to turn it upside down. When 26 billionaires have as much wealth as half of humanity, that's a crisis. Fain went on to say automakers, the automakers strike was just the beginning. Now we take our strike muscle and our fighting spirit to the rest of the industries we represent and to millions of non-union workers ready to stand up and fight for a better life. And as we reported on the show, I always say unions lift all boats. We are seeing wages go up at those non-union plans. Why? Well, they're afraid that the union's going to come in. Honda's raising wages, I believe, around 11%. Nissan is pretty much going to match the raise that the UAW workers got. So, once again, like I said, when unions win, all workers win. All right, quick break. When we come back, the housing crisis in the state of Minnesota. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. 
from roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at afge.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craft Workers. For more information, please visit BACweb.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Before we get to our first guest, I want to do another shout out here and a plug for the Alliance for American Manufacturing, if you're looking for a gift made in the USA, and I know a lot of you are looking for that, 81%, according to the Alliance's polling, they want American-made products. And this is the time you buy American-made gifts. So go to AmericanManufacturing.org, and they have gifts from every state, along with the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. So do check that out. In fact, Scott Paul and his team put this all together. He'll be on the show next Thursday. That's the uh, December 7th edition of America's Workforce. Right now, let's go to the state of Minnesota. Joining us on line number one is Jake Schweitzer. Jake is the executive director of a pretty young organization, North Star Policy Action. He spent much of his life researching, creating, enacting, and defending public policies. It's important. If you got good policies, they benefit workers. But... <laughs> You got to read the fine print, Jake. Uh, did I pronounce your name correctly? Is it Schweitzer then, not Schweitzer? Is that right? That's right. It's Schweitzer. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I see you worked with uh, Al Franken at one time. That had to be a fun part of your life. 
I sure did. Yeah, he he was a great boss. I I was lucky enough to to work for him for his entire Senate career in in his Senate office. So I started answering phones and worked my way up the legislative and policy team, and then moved back to his state office and and kind of ran his his field and outreach team here in the state. Um, and yeah, he was he was a great boss to work for. A lot of fun. I think it's kind of interesting. You had a comedian that goes into politics and now politics has pretty much become a bunch of comedians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that was why he was, he was so popular at the time. Um, I think he could kind of blend that uh, comedic approach. Um, you know, he had a, he had a big background in, in satire and uh, a lot of people, you know, see the crazy stuff happening in our political system and our government and think about it the way that he does of like, gosh, you know, what a joke. Um, and he was able to really uh, blend those messages. Yeah. Very sharp guy. Very sharp guy. All right. Let's talk about your organization here. North Star Policy Action. Give me a little background on what this is all about and what you actually do. Yeah. So we're, we are a think tank based here in Minnesota. We're a little bit over a year old. Um, so we are focused on um, broadly speaking, uh, uh, working people's issues here in Minnesota. Um, so uh, obviously working people's issues are almost every issue under the sun. Um, but we find, um, you know, we're, we're focused on two things, research and communications. And so um, we, are, we are a data-driven organization trying to find um, the best possible policies for working people in Minnesota and then to go um, – uh, communicate the the research and the data that we find supporting those policies and communicate them effectively in a way uh, that everyday Minnesotans can understand and their policymakers can understand. Now, I understand you have a partnership with uh, Lyuna, Minnesota. Can you give us a little background on that, how that evolved? Yeah, so they are one of our, our, our founding funders, um, and um, uh, sit on the board of our organization. Um, they've been a key supporter. And uh, the report that we're going to talk about today um, uh, was co-authored by uh, myself and Lucas Franco, um, who works at Lyuna, uh, Minnesota, and North Dakota. Um, and uh, he's just a really smart research mind. And we've been able to partner together on, on several projects now. Yeah, Lucas is a great guy. He's been on a number of times. And it's so funny. I said, Lucas, come back on the show. You haven't been on. And he's the kind of guy who said, you know what? I'd like to come on, but I got something more important. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. He was giving the whole show to you and uh, the work that you did on this report. Subsidizing abuse, how public financing fuels exploitation in affordable housing construction. Why don't you, let's start at the beginning here. What, what has happened here in the state of Minnesota? Well, so first off, um, you know, it's important to recognize that Minnesota, like I think every country or every state in the country, uh, is in the middle of a severe housing crisis. So um, between 2011 and 2021, uh, Minnesota lost 100,000 housing units that are available for less than $1,000 a month. So, you know, truly affordable um, uh, rents, uh, you know, we're, we're losing those across the state. Um, more and more Minnesotans are paying more than 30% of their household income. Uh, more than 10% of Minnesotans are, are, are paying that. Um, and that's what's defined as, you know, cost burden. So you're, you're paying an unaffordable amount of your income towards housing. Um, it's, it's become a true crisis. And so, um, luckily, um, 
state and local policymakers are starting, and, and, and federal policymakers are starting to step up and invest in uh, building more housing. Uh, the problem that we really dig into in this report is when those housing programs don't have labor protections tied to those dollars. So um, we, our research dug into and we identified several problem contractors in housing. So uh, housing construction, unfortunately, is, is rife with abuse of workers, um, wage theft, uh, insurance fraud, uh, other issues like this. Uh, it's extremely common in housing construction. And so we identified problem contractors who have, you know, deep records of, you know, rap sheets of abusing workers. And um, we tied those contractors to work on publicly subsidized affordable housing projects uh, across Minnesota, mostly focused in, in the metro area, and the Twin Cities metro. And what we found is um, a total of uh, $84 million in taxpayer subsidies going to these contractors uh, working on these projects uh, across Minnesota. Um, that is a, that's a staggering amount of public money that is flowing to contractors who have a long history of abusing workers. And that's what we're concerned about. What percentage would you say are bad contractors out of that? You know, I mean, 84 million, that's a chunk of change over there. And, you know, everybody's going to try to get a piece of the pie. Do you have any idea how many are, are, are shouldn't even be involved in, in housing construction? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't put a percentage on it um, just because we're not, we're not at all confident that we've dug up even the, the lion's share of, of the problem here, you know, the, the projects that we've named are the ones that we were super confidently able to tie a, a problem contractor to a specific project being built. <clears throat> I am sure that there are, are many more projects out there employing problem contractors or where there's abuse going on that we weren't able to name in this report. So the, the problem is, um, I, I'm confident the problem is even much, much bigger than what we've named in this report. Okay, Jake, when, when did this public money come about? I mean, was it, was this recently? You mentioned that this, this housing crisis goes over mm-hmm. a, a decade here, and it's getting worse. It's not getting better. So here comes state and local government saying, well, we're going to pour a bunch of money in there. Uh, I'm just wondering, was did anybody speak up and say, wait a minute, if we're going to give X amount of money, you got to put some protections in here for the workers. Did anybody come forward and say that at the time? Well, so interestingly, uh, there, there has been a lot of new money flowing to this, and the new money does have, for the most part, does have good, strong worker protections tied to it. The two programs we looked at are some of the oldest and largest funding sources for affordable housing, and they don't have any worker protections tied to them. So the two programs we looked at are low-income housing tax credits. So these are federal tax credits that are managed by states and some local entities. Um, and the federal government doesn't tie strong enough worker protections to them. And the states and, and local entities that you know, sub-allocate the funding could tie their own worker protections to these dollars, but, but they're not. And that's what we're advocating for. Um, I see. And then the and the second program uh, is uh, TIF, tax increment financing. So this is mostly done at the municipal level, some sometimes at the county level, um, 
And the, uh, these dollars also don't have, um, uh, for the most part, don't have worker protections tied to them. And these are, these are old funding sources. Low-income housing tax credits go back to uh, the Reagan administration. You know, he pushed these tax credits as a solution rather than traditional direct building of public housing. Um, so you wanted to bring in the private market, and bringing in the private market brings in the profit motive, and that's where this conflict takes place. The, the intersection between public contracts and the profit motive is where abuse is occurring. There you have it. Goes back to the 1980s. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, that's the guy that fired all the air traffic controllers, so obviously no worker protections back then. So what we're focused on here is low income housing tax credits that's that's a federal program and again just to be clear here zero protections for workers on that right that's right it's um it's it's, some of the folks i've talked to in this area are shocked you know one of the most common um worker protections in public programs is uh, a prevailing wage law um, uh, folks I've, I've talked to are shocked to learn that low-income housing tax credits do not have prevailing wage protections tied to them. Um, so prevailing wage laws are put in place to prevent, you know, large public funding programs from coming in and depressing wages in an area because of mm-hmm. the huge buying power of the federal government. Um, this is a this is a law a regulation that should be tied to every public spending that takes place, especially in construction, um, because of the the destructive force that in the federal buying power can have if it doesn't have prevailing wage protections. Uh, so the fact that it doesn't uh, have these protections in in the low income housing tax credit program uh, is is one of the things leading to this problem. Jake, let me ask you one more question here before we break. I- I'm just wondering here, you know Biden is pretty pro-union. I'm wondering, since this is a federal program, we're talking about the low-income housing tax credits, is anybody from your organization or somebody in, in uh, Minnesota or maybe Lyuna going to Washington and say, hey, you you got you to gotta change this, this situation and get some worker protections? Uh, or maybe I just gave you an idea. Is any of that about to happen? <laughs> So uh, that, that message is certainly going to uh, to Congress. Um, uh, we, we should also amplify it up to the White House as well. Uh, the, our focus at North Star Policy Action, you know, we're, we're a small but mighty organization, mostly focused on state policy here in Minnesota. Um, so uh, we've had a great response from policymakers, from legislators here in Minnesota. There, uh, there will be legislation in the next legislative session uh, addressing this this issue in Minnesota, and, and I'll look forward to seeing that signed into law that will um, put in place stronger worker protections on these. But uh, as you said, this is a nationwide problem. You know, we're like we're, we've identified this problem on a federal program, uh, and we certainly uh, would much prefer this be a nationwide solution rather than a state by state one. Absolutely, yeah. You know what's going on in the in the other 49 states. I'm sure it is. All right. Jake Schweitzer joining us on our live line. He's the executive director of North Star Policy Action. More to come from him. And later in the show, Tom Buffenbarger, former general president of the Machinist Union, is going to talk about the workers who built the B-29. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. 
the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel for more information. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong. And fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you could check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings. So, Please keep him coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, oh.aft.org is their website. Let's go back to the state of Minnesota and uh, from St. Paul, Minnesota today, Jake Schweitzer joining us. He is executive director of North Star Policy Action, relatively young organization, northstarpolicy.org is their website. And once again, I got to give a shout out to our brothers and sisters at Lyuna, Minnesota, for calling attention to the situation. We're talking about affordable housing. There's a housing crisis, especially when you're trying to find a, a place today, and it's like two, $3,000 a month, and they're, they're trying to correct the problem, and they, they hit it head-on in the state of Minnesota. And unfortunately, the money didn't have any labor protections. And, uh, and this is exactly where Jake comes in, documenting all the abuse. Uh, research found that since 2018... Workers on 14 projects that received $53 million in tax increment subsidies were potentially at risk of exploitation by problem contractors. And altogether, I think the first uh, number you shouted out was uh, $84 million. And we don't have a percentage, but it's, it's, it's off the charts right now. And we're taking what we're looking at is exploitation, especially of, uh, of immigrants and the other part of this story, and Jake, maybe you can uh, chime in on this. It, it, when it comes to commercial, you see unions, you know, the building trades, mostly commercial. 
in the housing, in the residential market, not the case. And, and is that part of the uh, part of the problem here, in your opinion? That's a huge part of the problem. I mean, um, you know, the, the, that the, the benefit, one of the benefits of, of union workplaces is your unions are fighting to protect you, the worker. That's, that's the point. That's why you join together in a collective voice. And when you don't have that collective voice, uh, it's much easier to pick off individual workers and and take advantage of them. And and like you mentioned, um, housing construction is a is a largely immigrant workforce and um, oftentimes an undocumented immigrant workforce. And uh, employers know that and they take advantage of these folks. And so we've seen um, we've seen workers who try to speak up and say. So there's an example of a. Uh, a worker where the employer refused to uh, pay them their their wages uh, and offered them drugs instead and told the worker that uh, they could make more money by just going out and selling the drugs uh, than they would make if they paid them their wages. Um, they knew uh, that that worker uh, couldn't speak up and, and wasn't going to report them uh, because if they did, uh, the employer was going to threaten uh, to report them to immigration authorities. Um, you know, these, these are horrific abuses um, going on that oftentimes we talk about, you know, wage theft, uh, labor abuses, and it sounds very general and 30,000 feet, and, and we get divorced from the true human impact uh, on the workers on the work site. And um, what this report has tried to do is, is hold up specific human stories uh, to demonstrate exactly the, the, you know, the destructive impact of, of problem contractors like these. So with the release of this report, I can only assume that some lawmakers, their eyes have opened up. And you kind of touched on this in the first segment that the, it, it's getting they're trying to put some safeguards in when it comes to public money. Where, where do we stand with that? right now, Jake. That's right. So our, our report goes into specific things um, that both the state uh, who is managing uh, the federal low-income housing tax credit program and specific municipalities uh, who are managing their, their TIF projects, things that uh, the state and cities can do uh, to protect workers on these projects. So uh, the state can and should increase transparency of exactly who's working on these projects. So part of the problem here is uh, you've got the developer, the, the main uh, you know developer, who then hires a contractor, who hires a subcontractor, who hires a subcontractor. And right. through that deep web of fissuring, um, they can make it hard to find out exactly who's working on the project, and that makes it far easier for abuse to occur. So um, the state can require greater transparency of who's actually working on the projects. Um, they can you know, specifically disqualify contractors who have a documented record of abuse, uh, like many of the ones we've named in our report. They can give preferences to contractors that recognize the value of good jobs. So for instance, union contractors, um, there, there are a lot of steps that the state can take. Um, but I, you know, I personally, I think that that disqualification of problem contractors, uh, is the, is the bare minimum. Um, if you've demonstrated time and time again, that you are disrespecting your workers, that you are taking advantage of them, um, that you are breaking the law, you should not qualify for, for public subsidy on these, on these projects. You should not be allowed to work. That's a, that's a, a real simple thing that we can require. Um, same thing in, in cities on their TIF projects, tax increment financing projects. Um, 
you know, one of the things we've we've seen and, and um, have noticed in the city of Richfield, um, they will claw back their public dollars. They'll they'll pull the money back um, if an abuse occurs on their project. That's an incredible disincentive um, uh, for abuse uh, occurring. If if the city is going to say we're going to take back all of the public funding we put into this project, if you if abuse occurs on your project, uh, a, a developer is going to make darn sure. Uh, that you know everything is by the book on their project, and that's the type of regulation that we need. Have any of the contractors that the developers hired, especially with this report coming out, you you named you named the, the developers. I mean, did you get yep. into specifics onto the contractors? And I'm just wondering here, since they pretty much broke the law, are they facing any charges as a result? So all of the all of the abuses that we've named are are either publicly. Um, you know, we've got workers who have testified before our legislature. Um, uh, so it's stories like that that um, have been publicly named or are, um, you know, officially filed uh, reports of abuse. So, yes, these are things that are working through the legal system um, already. Uh, we haven't alleged new cases of abuse. Um, we're saying this is a contractor that has a long rap sheet of documented abuses already in the legal system, that's enough to disqualify them from, from receiving public funding. Uh, That's the case we're making. You know, it's gotta be amazing to you. It is to me what you have to do to, uh, to kind of like show the light and and get something done the right way in America. I mean, you, you know, this has been going on a long time and you, you spend a lot of time and effort on this report and and it's still you, you these these folks are probably still working in in the in the housing market right now. Isn't this, isn't it kind of frustrating to you, Jake? It's extremely frustrating. It's extremely frustrating the amount of money that's being made off of you know on the backs of workers who are being abused. Uh, that's obviously incredibly frust- more than frustrating. It's it's horrifying. Um, the, the unique situation here is that it's money being made off of public taxpayer dollars where workers are being abused as well. That's, I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit that we have to solve through better public policy. Um, you know, I, I long for a day when we have solved abuse throughout the, the construction industry um, writ large, but man, we better be able to root it out in publicly funded, uh, uh construction projects that has yeah. got, you know, that needs to be a priority. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my hat's off to you and your team over there in Minnesota. And also another shout out here for Lucas Franco, one of our brothers there at Lyuna, Minnesota for calling attention to this. So, uh, keep in touch. I'm sure you're going to be doing more research, but, uh, thank you for coming to the table today and uh, let us know what happens here. I, and this show, we do a lot with the trades and they, they want to get this fixed like yesterday. Okay. Can we do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We'll be in touch. I I'm hoping we'll have some good news uh, this spring. Hopefully the state legislature will take some action and uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Okay. Do check out that report. Those of you listening, northstarpolicy.org. That's the uh, group that uh, Jake works with. He serves as executive director, North Star Policy Action. You take care, stay safe, and uh, enjoy the upcoming holidays. Okay, brother? Thanks so much. You too. All right, quick break. Coming up next, Tom Buffenbarger on the building of the B-29. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. 
It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at IFPTE.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWaterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at USW.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That's AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, ULAgency.org. Let's go to line number two. Welcome a dear friend, longtime supporter of America's workforce, especially when he was general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Go IAM.org is their national website. Tom, since retired, but continues on as our independent labor observer. And as I indicated, the beginning of the show, I saw a really good piece on the History Channel recently about the building of the B-29 bomber. That's the plane that flew over uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, 1945, which pretty much put an end to World War II. And the first thing that came to mind was Tommy Buffenbarger, especially when they talked about that plant in Wichita, Kansas. Tommy, I know you got a great history with the machinists. Talk to me about the workers that built the B-29. It's all yours, brother. Hey, Flash, uh, many, many years ago when I was still uh, a snot-nosed young rep for the machinist and uh, was involved, assigned to negotiations in the aerospace industry since I came out of an aerospace plant myself, I got to know the people in Wichita at the Boeing plant there very well. And in my early years... There were still some workers there that built the B-29s from the World War II era. They were old-timers then, full of experience and great stories. I consider myself honored to have met them, 
to heard their stories, and I wish then we were able to, um, you know, capture them on film uh, or video and recording because nobody could tell that story like they could. Uh, this this plant used to be a Stearman um, airplane plant. That's the old shoot. They made biplanes. They made some of the first single wing planes. This is an old aircraft plant that, uh, and Stearman was one of the pioneers of aviation. Well, Boeing took over that plant, I think, in the 1930s, and uh, they bought it out and continued to produce planes. When the outset of World War II came out, you know, here was a plant in the middle of the country uh, building small planes, and they knew, because the government asked them to build for the war effort as we entered World War II. So they had to build a brand new plant after December 7th of 1941 on that site in Wichita so that we could build bigger planes, build the planes our country was going to need to defend ourselves and ultimately win World War II. And in 18 months, Flash, they built a plant that was huge, and it was the plant where the first B-29s came out. These are huge airplanes. Oh, yeah. And the problem Boeing had was that, okay, we can build these, these huge plants, but where do we find the workers to fill it? And so they had to scour, I mean, scour all of Kansas, all of the surrounding states, because people didn't have the ability to travel. We didn't have interstate highways then. They had to bring them into Wichita, had to house them and feed them, and their job was to produce B-29 bombers. And did they produce them? By from uh, the first B-29s, from what I can remember, were delivered in 1943. And it started off that they would produce just a few every month. By the end of World War II, they were turning out 4.2 superfortresses, the B-29s, every day for an average of 100 a month. Amazing. These people went to work big time, produced a lot of, they produced, if I'm not, about 1,600 B-29s there in Wichita. And actually they produced more than that. The others were used for extra parts and stuff like that if they needed them. And, uh, this, this is the plane, as you mentioned earlier, that carried uh, uh, Little Boy and Fat Man as they, uh, the atomic weapons that ended World War II, uh, and plus all the other long-range bombing needs, the U.S., the European theater in Asia, all, wherever we needed to project that kind of power, this plane could do it. Now... 
having said all that about Wichita, there there were play, uh, B-29s built in Seattle, Washington, Omaha, Nebraska, and in uh, Marietta, Georgia. So that plant in Marietta today still produces the C-130s. That plant is uh, Lockheed Martin now. Uh, Omaha doesn't exist anymore, but we sure know Seattle does. And among all these plants, in a relatively short number of years, we're talking about three to four years, they built about almost 3,888, to be exact, Mm -hmm. were built in all these factories by workers who took a new design, Think of the engineering that had to come up with this on sure. short order. Built these huge airplanes that could carry a lot of tonnage into the atmosphere, fly long ranges, carry out their mission, and return safely, or hope we hope they would. That's what ha- It was a miracle of production capability during World War II, and the people who built these planes and the lives they saved with them is incalculable and a big debt is owed to the people who worked on this project. And I'm proud of the fact that they were IAM members that uh, did all this. Well, you should be. Just a tremendous story about the creation of one great aircraft, by the way. I'm going to run down some of the stats on this plane. It's it's mind-boggling. Um, empty, empty, 69,000 pounds. Um, maximum takeoff. When they took off, it was 105,000 pounds. Maximum speed was just shy of 400 miles per hour, 399. Cruise 220. Um, the combat, there's two different ceilings here. Service ceiling, 31,000. 850 feet, combat ceiling, 36,150 feet, and the range, 4,200 miles with 18,000 pounds of bombs. It's just, in fact, in fact, 40% of the fuselage was dedicated to carrying bombs. That That's the kind of plane that was built by uh, Machinist Union members here. Let me ask you this. You, you talked with some of these folks. Did they have any idea the scope of what they were building and what kind of missions this plane would be on? Did you catch any of that when you talked no, to them, Tom? Flash, at first, they didn't. They were all kind of, uh, these are the stories I was told. When they first started to build the planes and the workers saw the blueprints and the sketches and this was all a giant gamble anyway. They were, how does it even get off the ground right. without the bombs on it? It was <laughs> huge. Nobody had built a plane that size before. And by the end of World War II, the, the, a funny little thing, you can measure their dedication by how many people they didn't have absentee problems or anything like that. These workers were dedicated. They knew. They learned 
that their work every day building these planes, day in and day out, 24-7, it did not stop. It was important for this effort. It would save lives. It would protect their loved ones. It was the thing to do for their country. It was their way to serve the nation during the time of its greatest needs. And that's the part that really, I guess, sunk in with me, is how dedicated they were. And uh, so we talked later on about problems we might have in negotiations, and the old-timers would say, that's nothing. People don't know today what hard work is. We'll tell you what hard work's about. And that's when they would relay these stories to me. No gripes, no complaints. Put that plane out the door as a high-quality product as quickly as you can because there's some soldiers or sailors somewhere that are going to need it to look out for them. Tom, what you just said, boy, that was a different time in America, wasn't it? Oh, totally. You know, my dad was a veteran. Uh, He fought in the uh, Pacific, did some island hops, little invasions and stuff, and ended up in uh, on uh, Okinawa. And he was there among the forces preparing because their next move would have been mainland Japan. And the prospects for surviving that were not good. And because of the B-29 bomber and the missions that two planes had to carry out. It saved a lot of lives. The estimates are from the U.S. Army is it saved about a million soldiers' lives because that's what they figured we would expend over the course of trying to take on Japan on its home ground before the war would end. And that's very sobering to me, because I wouldn't be here telling you these stories had not a plane called the B-29 been around at the end of World War II. Well, Tom Buffenbarger, thanks for sharing that story. We really appreciate it. We appreciate everything that you bring to the table here on America's Workforce. Tom Buffenbarger, former general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, our independent labor observer. You take care, my brother. We'll talk to you in a month, okay? Thank you, Flash. The best to all your listeners, and uh, remember the vets this month. It's, uh, it's their month to think about them. Amen, brother. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, what the SAFE Project is all about. That and more. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.